Today we're starting a new series entitled, What Every Christian Needs to Do. Not what every Christian might think is a good idea or should do, or, but needs to do. Things that the Lord has commanded us. You know, I think one of the reasons we struggle to understand the, the Christian life and how it works in relationship to the Lord is because there's really no parallel. We, we've never experienced anything like this before. You think about uh, different things. My wife and I, we, we like to watch uh, college football. I don't know if you guys watch that or not, but we like to watch college football. And uh, one of the interesting things about that is there's a coach, and the coach is well, he's supposed to be in charge. He calls the plays, and, and he has assistant coaches under him he gives directions to. And I've observed that every once in a while, uh, seniors, particularly ones that have the skill, uh, sometimes they forget who the coach is, and they kind of want to do their own thing. And that usually involves getting uh, screamed at. And that, that's whenever we see that going on, I always tell my kids, don't read their lips. And so uh, it usually involves getting screamed at, and you get benched. And, but, you know, if you're, if you're the best player the coaches got, you're not going to be benched for long. You're going back out there. They know that. That's why they get away with it. And even if he benches you the rest of the season, if you're really that good, you're going to the NFL anyway. So you, you don't really have to do everything the coach says. A friend I went to school with, he's a major in the, in the Army, and he was telling me about there's a, a lot of uh, passive, aggressive resistance in the military. He gets very frustrated with I wasn't in the military. I volunteered, but I, I couldn't pass the physical because of my uh, uh, vascular issues I have. But he, he gets frustrated with, with guys that he says uh, find ways to look like they're doing what they've been commanded in order to do, but aren't really doing at all what they're supposed to be doing. And so he says people get away with this all the time and in, in, in looking like they're supposed to be doing what they're supposed to do. And the thing about the Lord is he's, he's not like a coach. And he's not like a general or a major either. Uh, he's, he's not even like a president. You see, the Lord is the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he knows everything. So there is no appearing to do what you're supposed to do. That, that might fool the rest of us, but it doesn't fool the Lord. He knows everything. And there's no, there's no higher power that you're going to eventually appeal to or move up to. There's no other league that you can get out from under him. And so when we begin to understand that the Lord is the absolute authority, then it should motivate us to want to hear from him. And the Lord has spoken about many things. And there are areas of a Christian life that he has defined for us and told us to how we're to conduct these things and, and what it is that we're, we're to do. Well, one of these areas is what we're going to look at today, and that's the Lord's Supper. When you think about what every Christian needs to do, well, first of all, every Christian needs to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, there's a variety of books and some of them come from Paul's letters. Paul was one of the apostles in the early church, and Paul had started some churches and he'd helped lead others. And Paul would, would write to them when he was away and send them messages about things that were going on in their church. And the church at Corinth was, it was an absolute mess. And so Paul wrote to them on, on a couple of different occasions that are recorded in the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians, this is one of these letters that Paul wrote to them. And he was dealing with different issues that was taking place in the church. And one of the problems was the way in which they were observing the Lord's Supper. And so Paul writes to them and explains to them that, that first of all, they're, they're doing it wrong. And second of all, there are really big consequences for, for doing it wrong. And so that's, that's the, really the gist of Paul's message about the Lord's Supper. And so as we read this and understand it, it teaches us a tremendous amount about not only the fact that we, we need to be conducting the Lord's Supper, but 
that we need to do it in, in the right way. And, and the right way is the way that God has directed us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 is the passage that we're going to be looking at today. I want to ask you, would you join me in standing just out of reverence for God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, here's what it says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating... One goes ahead with his own meal, one gets hungry, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it may not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to understand the situation in Corinth, and I pray that it would be a a basis for us to examine our situation and ask ourselves, are we celebrating the Lord's Supper as you have called us to? I pray, Lord, today that you speak to us through your word, for it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the things that's pretty clear in this passage is that there is a right way and a wrong way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So notice what he says to them in verse 17 about this. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, and listen to what he says here, but for the worse, for the worse. So, so, they're, so they're coming together, and they're, they're doing something, but Paul said, will later say that it's not even the Lord's Supper the way that they're doing it. And it says that when you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not for better, but it's for, it's for worse. And so the reason is, in verse 29, it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment, on himself you see it's, it's it's better not to take the lord's supper than to do it wrong god has given us very clear instructions about how we're to do this and what we're to celebrate when we come together 
And it's easy to take anything that the Lord has given us if we want to and distort it and forget why we're doing it, turn it into a ritual or focus on other things. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were no longer coming together as one body celebrating and remembering the death of Christ. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, the Lord here is talking about a different issue, but the principle is the same. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Well, in this passage and what Paul is saying about the Corinthians in the Lord's Supper, you see the same principle here. That it's important that when you come together to worship and to do something that God has commanded you to do, that you do it in the right way. And so Jesus said that the Lord wants us to be unified together. He wants us to forgive one another. And this is so important that if you come to the temple, and the temple's no longer around anymore, but, but in that time, he said, if you come to the temple and go to the altar to make your gift, he says, this is so important that, that you, you don't need to worry about giving your gift if you've not forgiven your brother. And so he says, if you come and you're in the middle of giving your gift, and then you remember there's something I need to work out, then just leave the gift and go get that straight because God wants you to come and offer your gift in a certain way. That is, he wants you to offer your gift having extended forgiveness and having received forgiveness. And so in the same way, Paul says about the Lord's Supper, he says, when you come together, it's not for better, but for the worse. He says, you're, you're doing it in, in, in a wrong way. You see, the Lord's Supper was meant to be celebrated in a, in a unified church. And I... And I I'm going to talk some more about that in a minute because there, there's some definitions of unity that we could, we could never achieve. Uh, if unity means that we all think the same thing, we'll, we'll never get there. If we all like the same colors, we'll never get there. That's, that's not what it means. But it means that in our church, we're not dividing up into little groups and isolating ourselves from people. You know, this is, this is what we see in, in uh, high school. I don't know if you experience cliques or not, but in every high school I've ever seen, there are cliques. People divide up into groups. And they exclude everybody else from their group. And there's all kinds of subtle persecution that takes place from one group to the next. And so uh, this is what was happening in the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was uh, divided into groups. They were divided into haves and have-nots. And so if you can just imagine today what it would be like here, it would be like if we came into worship and everybody that, that uh, was a you know, successful entrepreneur and had a great business, they were gathered down over here and they had their own little clique. And then over here, we have all the people that are uh, well-educated intellectuals, but, but, but maybe they uh, have a lot of money, but they're, they're, they're teachers and educators. And, and so they're gathered over here in this little clique. And so, so they don't have a lot of money, but they look at the nose down on the people that are, that are the working-class people. And then over here, we got the poor. They gathered up. And so we get ready to do the Lord's Supper, and everybody brings their own thing. And so down here, they got steak and lobster. And, and, and back here, they've got, they've got uh, hamburgers and pork chops. And, and, and back here, they, they're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to divide their saltine cracker. That's what was happening in, in the church at Corinth. They were divided into these groups. And they were, they were using the Lord's Supper. They were, it had become a mockery as they brought the elements and the things that they were going to use. And they turned it into this big banquet in which they shamed other people for not being able to bring the extravagant things that they had brought. So they were, they were divided into these groups of haves and haves not. Proverbs 17.5 says, whoever mocks the poor 
insults his, his maker. We live in a time of great affluence, and uh, if I were to ask you today what's your financial status, perhaps some people today would say, well, I'm fairly well off, and some people here today might say, well, I'm poor. Well, the reality is that the poor among us, we're, we're not poor in relationship to the rest of the world. It's all, it's all relative, isn't it? We're, we're so affluent today. We sit here in this heated, beautiful sanctuary, so comfortable. And, and that's not bad because God has blessed us and many people worked hard and gave honest, earned tithes to produce this. It's not a bad thing. It just reminds us we need to be careful that we don't become puffed up and arrogant and forget who is the source of our blessing. So that when we see people who do not have, that we do not look down upon them or isolate them and divide up into groups within our church. But God intends for the church to be unified together. Galatians talks about in the church there's, there's not meant to be division among people based on their status. Galatians 3.27 and 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul was saying to the church at Galatians there is that within the church, once we come to become a disciple of Christ as a child of God, that relationship supersedes every other artificial division that might be among us. So that when we come in as the church, as the children of God, it doesn't matter what color we are. It doesn't matter what we do for a living. It doesn't matter what family we came from. It doesn't matter what state we grew up in. It makes no difference when we come together. That unity... The unity of being a child of God supersedes all those things. And so when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it, it, it is meant to be a beautiful picture of God's people coming together as one, remembering what Christ did for them. You see, the Lord's Supper, it's, it should be about the Lord and not about us. Notice what happens in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, so, so why did he say that? It's not the Lord's Supper. Because he says in verse 21, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So, so we got these people are coming together to do the Lord's Supper, but it was not the Lord's Supper. They turned it into their supper. It was about them as a place for them to, to practice gluttony. It was a place for them to brag about how much they had. And while other people were, were hungry, didn't have anything. And so Paul is saying that they have made this supper about them. It's no longer about the Lord. And I'll tell you this, it's easy to make things in church about yourself if you're not careful. But everything that we do in church, whether it's the Lord's Supper or worship or anything else, it needs to be about the Lord. It's his supper, it's his service, and it's his church. And so we need to constantly check our motives and ask ourselves, why are we doing the things that we're that we're doing is it really about the Lord or have I made this about about me so it was not the Lord's Supper that they were they were celebrating they were not coming together to reflect on what the Lord had done for him if you think about this when we celebrate the Lord's Supper if we don't come together to to, to remember and reflect and celebrate what the Lord has done for us then how is it his his supper Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 22, he says, or do you despise the church of God? Look at how serious God views this. These people were coming together and they were not, they were not focusing on the Lord, but instead they were dividing up into groups and they were, they were flaunting what they had. It had become about them. And, and Paul says, 
that their actions, not their words, but their actions despise the church of God. Well, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper in order to remember what Christ has done for us. So, so it's important that we understand that we don't create ways to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but instead we, we follow directions. You know, there's different things in church that I know if you, if you didn't grow up in church, you haven't read the Bible a lot, you may, you may wonder why we do different things that we do. And I, I promise you, we don't get together as, uh, with the deacons and say, hey, how do you guys want to do the Lord's Supper this time? You, you know, let's do something different. Let's, let's get a little edgy. Let's be creative with it. You know, how, how are we going to do the Lord's No, it's, 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 there's a directions in Scripture that we follow. We don't, we don't create ways to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord has told us what we're supposed to do. So notice what Paul emphasizes here in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Do you see what he says? Paul says, I received this from the Lord directly. And the Lord told him. Remember, the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And so Paul says, I received this teaching about the Lord's Supper from the Lord. And I give it to you. I delivered it also to you. Well, the same applies for us as well. So we have the scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 talks about the inspiration of God's word. And it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, what Paul was saying here in Second Timothy is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the word where we get the word inspired from. It's all breathed out by God, and therefore it's all profitable for, for teaching. And so when we ask ourselves, how do we know if we're doing the Lord's Supper right or not? Well, we go to God's Word. And in this passage that we have here today, Paul says, The Lord delivered this to me, and I have delivered it to you. And so when we read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians about what's to take place in the Lord's Supper, we're, we're hearing from the Lord in the same manner as if he was just standing before us speaking. It has the same authority because he delivered it to Paul and then through the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this down so that you and I can read it today. And if we're believers in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit within us and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we might understand not that any of this is even complicated, but the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts so we can understand what God is saying. And so we have a direct word from the Lord about how we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper because Paul says, I received it from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. So the Lord's Supper, here's how it works. The Lord's Supper uses symbols to give a visual reminder of the death of Christ. The bread is a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. Notice what it says in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is a picture of Christ's body broken for us. The juice is a reminder of his blood poured out for our forgiveness. Notice verse 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Well, we don't want to miss the point of the symbols by interpreting them literally. And, and people throughout the centuries have done this. Uh, many people have missed the point by thinking that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and the, the, the juice or the wine actually becomes the blood as you drink it. People believe this. Friend, there is symbolism all throughout the Bible where God takes everyday things that we're familiar with and uses them to teach us about spiritual things that we're not familiar with. And, and this is one of those cases where God took simple thing like bread and juice and used it as a symbol, a picture, to show us something about the death of Christ. And so we don't want to lose the point of the symbolism by interpreting them literally. This happened all throughout Scripture. And if we, if we were to look in uh, John chapter 3 to the story of Nicodemus, we see this taking place in the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was talking with Jesus, and Jesus told him, he said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, uh, he didn't understand that Jesus was not talking about physical, literal things. He didn't realize that Jesus was trying to teach him something by referring to something he was understood. And so he basically says, well, that's, that's crazy. You can't, a, a man can't go back into his mother's womb and be born again. But he, didn't, he didn't get it because he couldn't get past the literal so he missed the whole imagery. And then just one chapter over, in chapter 4, Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well. And as they're at the well, Jesus uses this thing right in front of her, something that she understands to teach her about spiritual things. And so Jesus says, if you knew who were asking, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And, and she can't get past the literal. And she says, well, the well's deep. Yeah, you you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me living water? So she misses the point. And you and I, if we, if we try to take the symbols that God has given us to show us things and we interpret them literally, we miss the very point of the teaching. So when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and we eat the bread and we drink the juice, they, they don't become the body and the blood of Christ. They are visual reminders for us that as we take that bread and it's, and it's broken, that God's son his body was broken for us as we drink the juice we're reminded that his blood was poured out for us in john chapter six just just two chapters over from the story of the woman at the well the lord had fed the people miraculously and then he begins to teach them a story about the bread of life in verse 47 listen to what it says truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Well, Jesus obviously didn't mean that he was bread. So, so again, there's a symbol here. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So see, once again, they, they just can't grasp the symbolism here. And so verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. He's talking about during the time wandering in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus is teaching on the synagogue, and, 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 and they're asking him about, about this bread. And at one point they're asking him, they said, well, well, give us a sign. He said, Moses gave us a sign. He gave us a sign of providing the manna in the wilderness. And so what they were saying is, you know, free bread every day, free fish every day. We might start to believe after a while. That's what they were asking him to do. That's the sign they were asking for. And Jesus said to them, he said, I am the bread of life. And then he begins to talk about eating this bread. And he doesn't mean it literally. He means that by participating, by believing and trusting. That's how he started the whole conversation. He said, whoever believes in me. You think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Most of the sacrifices people took and the animals offered. And it was often burnt. Some of the parts would be consumed by the priest as his portion to, to sustain his family. But, but the person that gave the offering, they, they didn't partake in it except for the Passover. And the Passover lamb, they sacrificed the lamb and they ate the sacrifice. And what happened in ancient Egypt when God said, I'm going to come through the land and I'm going to strike dead the firstborn in every household. But he said to the, his people, he said, take a lamb and sacrifice it. And smear his blood over the doorpost. And he said, and when I see the blood, I will pass over your home. And so those that believed and therefore sacrificed the lamb and ate it, God passed over them. And you see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's what 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb. And that's why Jesus says, whoever eats and drinks of me, it means that whoever has the faith to believe that the death of Christ can substitute for them and cause the wages of sin to pass over, whoever believes may inherit eternal life. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we eat the bread and we drink the juice, these are symbols that remind us about the death of Christ. And when we come together and we eat them and we drink them, we are, by our actions, stating that we believe and trust. So we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we proclaim what he's done for us while we await his return. That's what it says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, there's a final thing the Bible points out to us here is that we need to examine ourselves and celebrate the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. See, God holds us responsible for how we celebrate the Supper. Notice verse 27 of, of 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So, so we need to examine ourselves. Verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then, 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Later, in the next letter to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul would say to them, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So the Bible says that whenever we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to examine ourselves. And so there's a lot of things I think we need to examine. One, we need to examine our motives. And when you think about why are we, why are we doing this or what are we supposed to be doing? And then we need to examine ourselves and say, as Jesus said, if you're going to the temple and you're, you're bringing your gift to the altar and then you realize that your brother has something against you, go and make it right. In the same way, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper and God reminds us that there's, a, there's sin in our life that we've not repented of, there's sin that we've not confessed, then we need to confess that to God so that we're ready to celebrate the supper in a worthy manner. When we confess and when we repent, that's, that's when we're prepared and that's when we're ready. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. This is a psalm that David wrote after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. This is what he said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And listen to this passage, verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The problem with most Americans, they do not know their transgressions and their sin is not before them. They are in fact proud of it and revel in it. And as long as you and I are, are comfortable in our sin and we want to brag about our sin, we're not ready to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. When we come to the point like David here that we recognize we have sinned against God and we ask for forgiveness, as David said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David committed tremendous sin uh, I, I hope that, that nobody here today is guilty of the adultery and murder and lying for God that David was guilty of. But David may have been a great sinner, but he was also a great repenter. He came before the Lord in honest sincerity, confessing his actions as sin. And therefore, God said David was a man after his own heart. And when we come together to celebrate the supper, we need to be honest before God. There may not be another person in this church that ever understands the things that we've done wrong. They may not have a clue of the sin that's in our heart, but God sees and knows everything. And that's why if we're going to come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, we need to be honest with God. The things that we've done that are sin, we need to confess to him as sin. We need to ask for his forgiveness. And then having received forgiveness by his grace, we are ready to celebrate the supper together. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 gives us this beautiful promise. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, the Lord's Supper is a, it's a beautiful symbol that God has given us. It's the way that he's instructed us to remember his son's death. And, and we need to do it as a unified church. 
coming together as, as one people from perhaps all different backgrounds, uh, all different places. We may have all different financial means, but when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come together as children of God, heirs of the promise. We come together as one body of Christ. And when we celebrate the supper, it's his supper. It's not about us. It's not about drawing attention to ourselves. It's about drawing attention to him. And so we celebrate him when we receive the supper. When we see that bread and we see that juice, they're symbols that remind us that his body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for our forgiveness. And having confessed our sin and been forgiven, and we stand ready to celebrate the supper in a worthy manner. This is what God has called all of us to as believers. And this is the way that he's called us to do it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this beautiful picture that you've given us to celebrate your son's death. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to celebrate the supper in a worthy manner and to proclaim your son's death until he comes. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You know, the thing that we celebrate in the supper is the fact that Jesus died for us. And the reason that Jesus died for us is so that we could be forgiven. You see, just as in the Old Testament, when God was going to send the plague on Egypt, and he passed over the home of every person that had a substitute, that is, a lamb. In the same way, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was, he was your substitute. You and I, we are the ones that deserve to die. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die, but Christ died in our place. So you see, today, if you would come to believe and trust in him, you could have the gift of eternal life. Yes, you'll, you'll still physically die someday. But your spirit will live for all eternity. And one day, one day, God's going to resurrect all of us. And for those of us who have believed and received the gift of life, we'll be resurrected to life and to hope in him. So if you're here today and you'd like to be forgiven and receive the gift that God offers of eternal life, all you have to do is pray and ask God. That's all you have to do. If you believe and trust in him and decide you want to live for him, God will save you. And you'll become an heir of this great promise that God has given us. So I want to invite you today. If you've never called upon the Lord and asked for forgiveness of your sin, would you do it now as we sing? Friend, however you need to respond to the Lord, I want you to ask you to do it now as we sing. Let's stand together. Mm -hmm. 